You know, I want to begin by saying that uh, I'm so thankful to be part of this church, and, you know, we've been getting a lot of feedback about the book, When the Church Was a Family, and a lot of it, a lot of it is good, some is some difficulties that we're having, and I've been hearing from people in our growth groups and our growth group leaders, uh, hearing back from some of our elders, and one of the things that uh, is encouraging is that people are really taking this study seriously, aren't they? You know, we're, we're reading, we're saying, okay, I want to I engage this, and I want to find out what, why we're doing this. In fact, on my, at my Wednesday morning Bible study, you know, we have multiple tables, and one of my, I was sitting at my table, and somebody came over, hey, can you come over at our table and answer some questions? They wanted to know, okay, why, why are we doing this? And uh, one of the things we, we talked about is that, you know, we, a few, uh, last year, we decided to change the, the whole direction of how we do small groups, and we went to this growth group model. We used to do mini churches that, that our mini churches discussed the sermon and everybody was on the same page and we opened it up to other types of studies and, and so, you know, people are doing their own things. And we thought it was good, one of the reasons we did this was we thought it would be good that everybody would be brought back to do uh, the same book so we would be all, all on the same page. In fact, after we discussed this, uh, you know, after the, my group massed me, there, one thing for sure, everybody is discussing it. Everybody is reading it. Everybody is on the... And you know, it's not just in, it's not just in your growth groups, is it? <laughs> it's after your growth groups. It's at church. It's, oh, you know, why are we doing these things? And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. And uh, another motivation we discussed is that it's our desire to be more of a family. That's why we chose this particular book. You know, to understand uh, by looking back at, at the New Testament and seeing, you know, what the Word of God says and what the New Testament says, and, and looking at when, when Jesus said in Mark 3, verse 35 through 30, or 33 through 35, who are my mothers and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Why did he say that? What was the context? What did they understand about what he was saying? And so when we come to this passage in Luke, uh, chapter 14, verses 25 through 27, you know, this passage is a really difficult passage because it shocks us. You know, it shocks us just simply to read it, and it's hard because it inflames every, you know, fiber of our, of our lives as Christians. And we consider that it came from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ, who predominantly talks about what? Love, right? But in this case, he says a, a drastic word, and he says that we need to hate our families, so what does he mean by that? How, do, how do, does that fit in with what we think? And it, it's a hard saying. It's one of the, the hardest sayings, I think, in the Bible. And, you know, there's times for us that, you know, we, we want to just take it and excuse it. Well, maybe just he didn't mean it that way. Maybe it doesn't mean hate. Maybe it, it means something else. And, and we want to make it easy for us to, to swallow. And so we think, well, maybe he meant something different. But Hellerman says that when we try to simply take a text and make it say something that it doesn't mean, or we're basically trying to make it safe. And he says to reinterpret such texts in terms of personal, personal priorities, basically to make things more palatable for us, is to take the biting edge off these radical gospel teachings. There's a phrase for this kind of biblical interpretation. It is, it is called domesticating the tradition. Domestication means to make it uh, safe for bringing it inside the home, and so we, we want to. We don't want to do that, and we want this text and other texts to be nice and fit into our worldview. We we don't want anything to to ruffle our feathers, 
We want to look for an alternative interpretation so that our lives can really be, remain stable and unshaken. But the meaning of what Jesus says in this passage is, is virtually impossible to sidestep. In fact, Jesus uttered it intentionally so that those who heard him would be shaken up. And what Jesus is doing in, in Luke 14 is trying to shake up his listeners in order to wake them up. It's a hard saying because he sees their hearts. And that's the thing about Jesus. He knows the purposes and the intentions of hearts. We don't always know those. So it's hard for us to understand what Jesus is saying at times. But when we look at you know, what we see Jesus doing, to see the Christian faith, you know, he's trying to get us to see the Christian faith for what it is. And what it is, it's a family. It's a family, not just any old family, but Jesus' Jesus's family with him at the center. An eternal family, as Kevin said last week, a family that has been purchased by the blood of Christ. And this passage has to to do with our families, and it has to do with our, our priorities and our convictions. It also has to do with those things that we love, and maybe even those things that we hate. It has to do with what we are willing to let go of, and maybe some things that we're unwilling to let go of. And this passage is challenging because we love our families. You know, our families are the ones that, that we know best. And from the time we enter this world, our, our fathers and mothers are, are everything to us. They're, all, they're everybody that we know. And, and we grow up loving our, our mothers and fathers. And we have a great relationship with our parents. And we, we understand some of the, the fatherhood of God by what we learn from our fathers. And we understand about some of the mercies of God by what we learn from our mothers. And we are groomed as, to be men and women in our homes from the time we enter into our families. And, and the love that we have for our families grows deeper and deeper. And the affection that we feel for of them is amazing. And I, I love my wife and kids. You know, I, as my kids grow older, I'm excited for them. I'm excited what God is doing in their lives. And, and here Jesus says, if I'm to come after him, I must hate him? That's, 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 a, hard, that's a hard saying, isn't it? You know, we love our families more than anything, more than anything in the world, and that is the problem. And I say that because this is a, a hard saying, and Jesus says that we cannot be his disciples until, until we cut the family cord, until, as he says, we hate them and even hate ourselves as well. So let's read it again, Luke 14, verses 25 through 27. He says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Do you know that the words of Christ have the ability to draw people to him? But do you also know that the words of Christ have the ability to drive people away? And the word of God is, is, is called a weapon. You know, it cuts to the heart. And Jesus is somebody who knows the intentions of people's hearts, doesn't he? You know, it's a weapon. And the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4, 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the Bible is a weapon. And because of that, the Bible cannot be played with. It's made to protect and to guard us, 
to make us safe, but it's also to challenge us at the deep, deepest levels of our hearts and our lives. We know that the Bible is truth, and truth is always challenging, always challenging. And the reason is because we stand in the way of truth, don't we? You know, we have our preconceived ideas of what truth is, and because of that, we have certain ideas about, about it. And so when truth comes to us and, and, and our hearts are hardened a little bit, we say, you know what, I don't want to hear that. You know, I, I know what truth is, and I don't want you to, to rock my boat, the Pharisees did the same thing, didn't they? I mean, for instance, Jesus and his disciples are you know, walking through the fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples begin to pick grains and eat wheat on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees want to confront Jesus, say, Jesus, you know, you guys are doing what's wrong. Your, your, your disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath, which is unlawful. But Jesus knows their heart, doesn't he? And what does Jesus say to them? I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one to, to, that determines what I meant in the Old Testament. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus can say things he wants. And sometimes he says things that are very difficult, even, even for the religious leaders. So maybe even for us, too. And the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day thought that they had God all figured out. They did not need anyone to tell them what God was like. Do we want to be like the religious leaders of Jesus' day and tell Jesus, you know, Jesus, you don't... You don't know what you're talking about here. You can't tell me to hate my family. No, but we have to figure out what Jesus meant, don't we? We don't want to simply just take that and say, I think I know what it means. We want to find out. And our immediate reaction to this is to say that, you know, that's not what he meant. And our immediate reaction is to excuse away what Jesus was saying because we, then we can separate ourselves from that confrontation. And yet before you go too far with that thinking, I think you have to realize that Jesus could have used any word he wanted to in this passage. He made all the words anyway, didn't he? He could have used any words, but he, choose, he chose to use the word hate. Last Friday night, a lady came up after the service and she said, you know, I have issues. I don't believe Jesus used the word hate. I think that's just in, in the ESV that you're using. That's not in the King James Version. She didn't happen to have a King James Version with her. And there was another lady standing there that had the NIV. And I, I read it out of the ESV to her. It says hate. And so we opened up the NIV and the New International Version. And we read it. And guess what? It said hate. But I decided to go home and I looked at the, the King James Version, the New King James Version, the Revised Standard Version. Guess what? They all say hate. They all say hate. Oh, and that's, that's the difficulty, isn't it? People have a difficulty with it. If anyone comes after me, he does not hate his family. The Greek word for hate is a very strong word. It means to persecute, to abhor, to detest. One commentator said it indicates a deep-seated hostility. It's the same word that's used throughout the New Testament, Jesus used it in Luke 6, 27, when he said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. It's the same word that the Apostle John uses in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Well, how does that fit? Jesus says to hate your family, but anyone who hates his family is a murderer doesn't, doesn't compute for us, does it? How can Jesus command us to hate our families, our wives and our children, our brothers and sisters? 
How can he? And I think this is important because following Jesus is more intense than what you think, what we think. Loving Christ and his family may be more demanding than we might understand. And so I want to look at three areas of thought concerning Jesus and his use of the word hate. Three areas of thought concerning what Jesus means by hate so that we can get out of this dilemma and engage what he's really speaking to our hearts. Because that's the issue. If we have a hard time with this, maybe there's a heart issue here. And the first area of thought is this, the confusion regarding hate. The confusion regarding hate. You know that Jesus doesn't mind confusing his listeners Bible says that God is not the author of confusion. I think that's because our hearts, right? Our hearts are desperately wicked, and sometimes Jesus says things and we don't understand. But, but Jesus uses some, some language at times. He talks in parables. And those who don't understand, they can't understand, so they're confused. And, you know, there's times that we are confused. You know, years ago when my, when my kids were little, uh, we were driving home. We lived in Long Beach, and we got in a car accident. We were driving down Pacific Coast Highway, and as we were coming up this hill, out of the corner of my eye, I see a car kind of out of control coming right at us, crossed the center divider, and plowed right into the side of our car. My kids are in the back seat. Some of them are in car seats. And the, the airbag went off, and I hit the airbag. And I was, I was confused. This thing hit me in the face, and I got out of the car, and I started kind of just walking around, kind of not knowing what happened. I started to walk towards the car that hit me. And as I started to gain my senses, I started thinking, what has happened? Then I started to get a clear thought. What about my family? And I went back to the car, and the, the car where, right where my daughter was was banged in. Her car seat was broken. But she was okay. My family was okay, and I, I praise God for that. But you know, I had, to, I had to come to my senses, didn't I? This, this thing that hit me, and, and I think what Jesus is trying to do is get us to come to our senses. You know, this is meant to, to stir us up and stop us in our tracks. And, you know, at times we just need to throw up our arms. Jesus, you get me through this. You show me what you mean by this. What has happened here? And when you and I are confused, it's, it's not just something that's intellectual. It's emotional. You know, there's a conflict because we know so much, and this doesn't fit with what we believe. And it's meant to produce a conflict that drives us to find the answer. I mean, don't you guys want to know the answer? Why does he say this? When, when Jesus says we must hate, we are confused about this because hatred goes against the Scripture's teaching on love, doesn't it? For instance, we know that we are called to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves in Mark chapter 12, verse 29 through 31, we know we are to love our enemies. As it says in Luke, verse 635, we know that of these three, faith, hope, and love, Paul says the greatest of these is love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we know that we are to love each other and that love covers a multitude of sins, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. And because our minds are so in tune to love, it's hard for us when we know that Jesus here is, has said to hate. We are confused because it doesn't fit our pre preconceived notions of what Jesus would say. And I'm, I believe that what Jesus is saying is here, here, Jesus is saying something that is possibly more difficult than anything else he has ever said. 
because it could be one of the most important things he could ever say. It is, it's a difficult thing. It's an important thing. And this is one of the reasons that we're going to look, we're going through this book, When the Church Was a Family, because we believe that it's so important to the heart of God that you know, we should be a family. We're, really, we're willing to read some very difficult things in order to bring us to a place that we understand really what God meant by being a family, to open up our eyes to, to blind spots. How many of us have blind spots? Well, not everyone raised their hand, so I guess that's maybe one blind spot that you have, that you don't have any blind spots. <laughs> now, we all have blind spots, don't we? Sometimes we need each other to, to show us what those blind spots are. No, but contemporary Christians would be utterly arrogant to assume that we are somehow immune to similar theological blind spots, as Hellerman says. But in order to find out what those blind spots are, you know, we need to engage one another, we need to encourage one another, help each other out so that we can grow. So we, you know, I have blind spots, and it's good for people to have people in my life that can encourage me and strengthen me, to show me those blind spots so that I can love God more. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is in the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, Hellerman says that those who leave don't grow. Those who stay grow. No, we have to engage, and if, if you stay and you engage, you're going to find out what those blind spots are, and you're going to grow. The second area of thought that I want to cover, because things are confusing, is the context regarding hate. The context regarding hate. And I hope that this context that Jesus says this will help clarify the confusion. There is a context for the statement that Jesus has made, and you need to understand it because it's going to help clarify why he says this. And it is important for us to understand that Jesus has just been dining at a, one of the ruler, a ruler of the Pharisees' house, and it, where, where he's just illustrated the reluctance of the human heart to enter the kingdom of God. And he's, he's just finished a story, and he leaves this house. And once he leaves the house, in verse 25, it says that the great crowds accompanied him. And as they accompanied him, he turned, he turned and he spoke to them. We have to understand that by, by this time in Jesus' ministry, there's a great crowd, and he has been followed by all kinds of people, and the crowds include all sorts of people with all different kinds of agendas, and Jesus knows their hearts. And remember, Jesus is God, and he knows their hearts, and he, he knows that not everyone who follows Jesus is following Jesus for the same reasons. They're not all following him, and not everyone here is following Jesus for the same reasons. We all have our own agendas. We have our, our own desires. We have our, our own heart issues that, that Jesus wants to confront. And for the crowds, for these crowds, you know, Jesus was the greatest thing going. They would wait and, and yearn to see maybe some miracle to be fed like they were when, they, when he fed the 5,000. You know, they're very interested in him and they're very, very attracted to Jesus. And they very much wanted to be associated with his ministry. You know, we see that when people are men followers too today, don't we? And they're so that they're waiting for him outside the home. And as he leaves this, the Pharisee's house, he begins to go on his way that the people who are waiting outside automatically just simply begin to follow him. 
And then out of nowhere, Jesus stops walking and turns around, turns around to the crowds and he begins to speak to them. And what he, what he does is he, he ends up finishing the rest of this chapter and he says some things to them. And it's recorded after he leaves the house that he speaks to them. And in this section, he repeats the overarching theme of this section. And he does it, he does it three times in verse 26, verse 27, and in verse 32. And the theme is this, you cannot be my disciples. You cannot be my disciples. You cannot be my disciples. Jesus leaves that house, seeing those who want something from him, instead of him running and making it easier for them to to come and attach themselves to Jesus, he makes it harder for them. And he's pushing them away because they are not following him the way that he wants to be followed. Reminds me of the, the rich young ruler who, as he was talking to Jesus, Jesus knew the intentions of his heart. Jesus didn't make it easier, did he? What did he say to the rich young ruler? Go and sell everything you have and then come follow me. But he knew the rich young ruler's heart. And the rich, he actually pushes the rich young ruler away. And in this case, you know, he makes it harder for them. He makes it harder for the crowds. And there's a clue why this is true when you go back and look at what the Lord taught those who were in the house. And we're going to see that he started teaching them, those who were in the house, about compassion. He's teaching about compassion. He was teaching about going against the grain, going against our own nature, going against those that we think are the most important to us, and caring for those who God thinks are the most important. You know, Jesus says, you know, there's your family, And there's my family. There's those that you love, and there's those that I love. And who is going to be the most important to you? And that's what he's teaching in the house. So look back at at verse 12 with me. We're going to start reading there to see the context and why maybe Jesus says this difficult statement. So verse 12 says, He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, you know, those people who you love the most, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You know, he's saying... You you don't just care about your own families. Care about the ones that God loves. Reminds me of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. If you love those who love you, what good is that? Do not even the heathen do that? No, he he wants them to be different. So he's confronting them. And he's confronting this man and the people at the table. And the reaction at the table from one of them we see in verse 15. He says, one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things. He said to him... Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Blessed is everybody. I mean, this man is shouting it out to Jesus. But I don't think he got it. Here is a man who's at dinner at the table and who hears the Lord say, invite to dinner those people who can never repay you. And then he exclaims something that shows he doesn't really get the point of what Jesus has been saying. You know, the man missed the message altogether. He doesn't respond to the teaching on compassion that, and say, Lord, Help me be compassionate. 
You know, he doesn't respond to the teaching in a way that, God, help me to be sacrificial in, in my life. He doesn't look at his own heart. No, he responds by saying, I'm going to the feast, and I'm going to heaven. He heard the feast part, but he didn't hear the reprimand that Jesus was saying. He didn't get it, and so he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And so what does Jesus do? I think Jesus knows his heart, and so Jesus tells a story. And the story is aimed at those who are invited to the feast, who say they're, they're going to the feast, but when the rubber meets the road, they aren't really going. They think they're going, but they're not. Because all of their other earthly priorities are in the way. So look at verse 16. It says, But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Can't you wait to go see your field? Is your field more important than me? And another said, you know, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Notice the excuses. They have to do with their possessions and their families. The invitation to the banquet is salvation. And these excuses are what the human heart gives itself in in rejecting Jesus. These excuses get in the way of us accepting the call of Christ. So the invitation to the banquet is salvation. The feast is heaven. The house gathering is the kingdom of God. And the invited reject it because they value their possessions and their families more than the call they've, they've been asked to come. And we don't really grasp the call of Christ to embrace his kingdom the way that he intends for us to embrace it as a group. Jesus' new group. But the problem is that we really value our own personal peace and affluence more than the kingdom of God. We value our own families over the family of God. And I see this so much in the church. You know, there are so many times that I've counseled people and encouraged people to get involved in the body of Christ, to get them to, to reach out and serve and to attempt to get people involved in the lives of others. And Jesus says, as Jesus says, but their homes and their possessions and their families get in the way. And People let their homes get in the way of of God's house. They let their possessions get in the way of serving. They let their their families get in the way of God's family. And they say they love God, but it's clear that they don't because their priorities are off. You know, how how is loving God expressed? You know, I I talked to somebody about this. You know, they say, no, loving God should be first. Well, But how is loving God expressed? Loving God can never be expressed without serving serving people. How do you serve God without serving people? You can't. No, it's by loving His people. We are somehow convinced that we can separate commitment to God from commitment to the people of God. We normally see our commitment to God and commitment to God's people in this sequence. We say God is, is first. God is first. 
Family is, is second. Church is, is third. And fourth is others. You know, yes, God, yes, loving God should be first. There's no doubt about that. But when we're talking about loving God, we're talking about action. God never talks about love in, in a sense of a feeling, does he? No, he, there's action involved. And how do you know that you love God? Well, Jesus says we will know or the world will know that our love, we have love for God because of our love for one another, doesn't it? So if you love God, if you love God, our sequence or priority of sequence should probably look like this. God's family, my family, and then others. And in my own family, my, I think my family, my wife and children know that, that this is true in my home. You know, there are times that you know, we have plans and we have an agenda and my family wants me there. And there's times that I may get a call that's a difficult call and I may have to actually get up and leave right in the middle of maybe something that, that we have planned. And that's not always easy. But we have, we have talked about this, that, that God's call is always the most important call to our lives. And, and family cannot get in, a way, in the way of God's call. You know, in my own life, I have, I have a greater connection to my, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, to those uh, family members who aren't believers. I have a greater connection. I can talk about the things that are really the most dear to my heart with you. To those family members who are unbelievers, I can't even mention it without having some sort of conflict. Because Jesus drives that conflict, doesn't he? But no, we understand in my house that, that serving God is, is really the most important thing. And, and that happens in serving the body of Christ, his family. You know, Jesus connects love for God with serving his people. Remember after the resurrection, Jesus talks with Peter on the beach. And he says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What does Peter say? Lord, you know that I love you. What does Jesus say to him? He says, feed my lambs. Jesus says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter says, tend my sheep. A third time, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. See, Jesus knows the heart, doesn't he? And he can speak to Peter's heart. And so for the third time, he says, feed my sheep. And there's action. Many people miss what God is calling them to. They make excuses. All they want is their own happiness. And they think that they've entered in. You know, I got my foot in the door. That's all I need to do. They think that they have attained all that Christ has for them. But they are unwilling to follow him in the way that he asks them to. So when he comes out of the house, he's told the story. The story comes out of the house and he sees the, the crowd. And he's probably thinking about the same thing. He he sees the crowds and he knows their agenda and he knows that their hearts are not with him. And, he, and, he, and, and for Jesus, it's, it's a hard thing to see the hardness of their hearts. And as he walks away and they begin to follow him and he knows their terrible fate and he turns to them and says, you must hate everyone you love if you're going to follow me. You must hate. Do you hear me? You must hate the closest to your heart. You cannot and you will not be my disciple. And the cost of being a disciple of Jesus is a great cost. And as a Christian, it's not just a relationship with Christ. It is a relationship with Christ that gives us, gives every other relationship meaning. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says this, The call of Jesus teaches us that our relation to the world has been built on an illusion. This is what has had hindered us from faith and obedience. Now we learn that in the most intimate relationships of life, in our kinship with father and mother, brothers and sisters, in married love, and in our duty to the community, direct relationships are impossible. Since the coming of Christ, his followers have no more immediate realities of their own. Between father and son, husband and wife, stands Christ as the mediator. Whether they are able to recognize him or not, We cannot establish direct contact outside ourselves except through him, through his word, and through our following of him. To think otherwise is to deceive ourselves. No, Jesus is the connection to every other true relationship. You can't really, as Christians, have a true relationship with anybody else without Christ as the mediator. We might not always see that. But it's true, and, and when it helps us in our relationships with one another to say, you know, Christ is, is the connection between you and I. But it also helps us in our understanding for the unbeliever that Christ is the one who is the mediator between us and them, that we might reach them for the gospel. And so we have the confusion, and we have the context. And so it, when you look at the context, it doesn't necessarily say to us, you must hate at this point, because he's saying it to the crowds and he knows their hearts. And Jesus wants to speak to our heart in the difficult places, those places that we haven't given over to him. Like the rich young ruler, he spoke to his heart about giving up his possessions. Does that mean every one of us needs to give up every possession we have? No, not necessarily. If that's a hard issue, then you need to consider it. If that's a hard issue, if that's something that's holding you back from, from following Christ, then yes, you need to, to give it up. If, if family is something that is holding you back from you coming to Christ, then you need to give it up. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we need to hate in the sense that we need to have this bitter anger towards somebody. So we've seen the confusion, we've seen the context, and the last one, we see the conflict regarding hate. The conflict regarding hate. And it's important that we've realized that Jesus always assumes that there's going to be conflict between what he wants and what our family wants. There's an assumption that, that by our, you know, from our Lord that he says that there's going to be tension by what he demands and what those that you love demand. And that's why he's using this language that's so difficult in order to make us hear him and to make us think through what he's saying. But for us as disciples, it's, we're not necessarily like the crowd, are we? We actually will answer the call if we're his disciples. When conflict arises between personal desires and family's desires and the mission of Jesus, the true disciple of Jesus has no problem knowing what they are supposed to do. I remember a, a man in our church uh, years ago, he was called to go on a mission trip to, to Europe, and it was a short-term mission trip, and his father was an unbeliever, and his father was deathly ill on his deathbed. And this man was, was torn. Do I go where I feel God called me to go, or do I stay back with my father who's dying, that I might lead him to Christ, and that, that I might care for him in his death? And it reminded me, at that time, it reminded me of what Jesus says to the man who says, 
let me, before I follow you, let me first go bury my father. And what does Jesus say to him? Let the dead bury their own dead. Another hard saying of Jesus. But this man and, uh, decided, I'm going to go. I'm going to go on this mission trip because I believe that that's what God has called me to. It wasn't a hard decision for him. He went. He went and he served and it was successful. And he came home and his father was still living. And he was able to lead his father to Christ before he died. But he answered the call. He didn't let his family and his family's concerns get in the way. And we have to understand that Christ's mission always takes priority. It always takes priority. Christ's mission is always number one, no matter how serious the need of the family. And nothing can be used as an excuse to refuse to do what Christ has called you to do. Jesus spoke similar words earlier in his ministry to his disciples. He's getting ready to send them out, commissioning them to do his work. And he says this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. He says, Do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, notice that to the true followers of Jesus, he doesn't say hate. But he says, never let your love for your family, your father and mother, and son, sons and daughters become greater than your love for me. But either way, the point is this. Nothing can compete with our love for Christ. Nothing can compete for, with our love for Christ. Here's the issue. You know, it's, it's not hate in the psychological aspect of hate, but it has to do with, with disowning. It has to do with a renunciation. It has to do with, with a rejection. A. Jacobson says, hate here probably does not mean dislike intensely, but sever one's relationship with family. Are you willing to... Are you willing to sever your relationship with your family for the, for the call of Christ? Those who become disciples of Jesus must be committed exclusively to him and cannot be bound to anything else in this world. So when Jesus uses the term hate, it's because he demands our separation. And he's warning his followers to not love anyone or anything more than him. Who do you love? Who do you love the most? And that's the challenge. And I don't believe that lessens the blow at all. You know, these, there are so many competing loves in our lives. You know, our whole lives ha we have competing loves, and we see this all the time in our families. I mean, you look at my life, I have a wife and four children, and, and they're all competing for my love. You know, my kids, each one of my kids individually want, want me, you know, to be with them. And so there's this, this competition for my love. I have to say... In, when it comes to my wife and my children, my wife gets my love the most. She's the priority relationship. 
God says that I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. She needs to be the priority relationship. I don't, I don't let my children get in the way of that. Neither do I let my relationship with my wife and my children get in the way of my relationship with God. He is the priority relationship overall. No, but when we see this, you know, couples struggle to keep the Lord's command to leave and cleave to their wives because of their parents sometimes. Their parents get in the way and spouses get in the way of following after and obeying God's command sometimes. And then we have children and, and children get in the way of following after and obeying the Lord's commands. And we start, we start to revolve our lives around our children or our children become more of a priority than, than God's family. And at every level, our families compete for the number one spot in our heart, which should be Jesus Christ. At every level, our families do compete, don't they? And that, that one spot, that one spot that is reserved for Jesus Christ. But what does Jesus do when that's the case? He confronts us, doesn't he? He confronts us where, where our hearts have difficulty with this. And, you know, we know that we're at war with our affections. And it was a pastor in, in London, G. Campbell Morgan, that said this, said this after the First World War. He said, in 1914, when that dire, dark, and disastrous year that the war broke out, day after day I watched the sons of Britain go. They were the first to go, and others followed, until five million went. They marched and then marched, often singing, but agony can lie hidden under the flippancy of a song. With splendid heroism, they went their, way, their tramp of their feet through the night and day, the finest of our young manhood. Did they love father and mother? Didn't they love the young wives that they had left? Didn't they love those who waved them farewell? Didn't they love their brothers and sisters, their children? Didn't they love their life? Of course they did. But an hour had struck when something higher than their earthly call they loved the best appealed to them. And they went with loyalty to the call that had come to them. That's all that Jesus wants. When we talk about the severity of the first line of his terms, the question that arises is this. Is Christ to have a loyalty lower than the loyalty of our boys and yours to our country's call? He calls for much. He calls for everything. He calls for the march that may have no return and can have no compromise. He wants us to love him more than all. In this passage, he says that these young men that he speaks about love their families, they love their loved ones, they love their countries so much that they were willing to leave it all behind for the sake of the call. They gave their lives for Jesus' sake or for the call of their country's sake. And Jesus calls us in the same way. He knows that we have a great love for our families, our fathers, our mothers, our sisters, our brothers, our wives, and our children. But in the midst of that love, he calls us to a greater love, a greater love. A love for him and a love for his kingdom, which includes those of, of his family. And if we say that, that we are his disciples then we must love one another. Let me finish with these words of Christ that he says in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. 
He says this, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus, who is willing to leave it all behind, to take up his cross, to answer your call to him. We thank you for his willingness to suffer on a cross for our sins that we might have eternal life. And I thank you for your word that, that does penetrate our hearts at times, that make, makes us question our motives, our agendas, the intentions of our heart, so that we could truly answer the call that you've called us to. I pray for your church that we would know that call to love one another. Lord, that through this study of when the church was a family, we would grow in our understanding, that we would not strive against it, but we would be willing to look at our blind spots so that we could really live as you have called us to live. We again thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.